Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. Since Hamilton started streaming on Disney+, Plus and thus reaching an audience far wider than that of the theater-goers, who were willing and able to shell out a lot of money to see it, the hot takes have been flooding the internet. One common theme of those is the show's historical accuracy, and I don't mean whether or not Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson resolved their ideological disputes via rap battles. Look, nobody's spoken rhyming couplets around Henry V, either. Get over it. The debate really seems to be around just how much of a hero Hamilton was, how ahead of his time, and how committed to the abolition of slavery. It's a fair criticism to say that the show does not make mention of Hamilton's participation in the slave trade, however limited. He, he did not, like many of his contemporaries, actually claim any of his fellow human beings as property. But the larger complaint seems to be that the show oversells his abolitionist tendencies. And this criticism feels more like projection. In fact, if you watch the show carefully, it doesn't really dwell much on that aspect of Hamilton at all. In fact, it spends as much time portraying Hamilton's abolitionism as Hamilton did, which is to say, not that much. But by the end of his life, he was certainly on the right side of the slavery versus not slavery line. What strikes me about the ubiquity of this particular criticism is that it seems to reflect something else. A desire for our heroes to be perfect. And an obsessive and almost paranoid compulsion to demonstrate that they were not. We seem to hold two priorities at once. We desperately want to lionize heroic figures. But we're so afraid of their flaws and shortcomings that we overcompensate in our criticisms of them when they're portrayed as lionized heroic figures. The reality is this. There really is no such thing as a hero. By which I mean that, just as we'd be wrong to judge people by their worst mistakes, we're also wrong to define people entirely by their finest hours. What makes the heroes of fiction spectacular and singular is less about their superpowers and more about that heroing is their job. Sure, Captain America is super strong, but he's a hero for a living. Bruce Wayne's life seems to be consumed with faking it through the day so that he can get to his real job, being Batman. In the real world, we just don't really have such people. What we do have is people who have done heroic deeds. Often these are very seriously flawed people, and often their deeds don't even achieve the desired outcome. Think John Brown, for example, a notoriously prickly and emotionally distant man with some questionable religious beliefs who nonetheless committed himself to a righteous cause and carried out an astonishing act of bravery, ultimately giving his life as a result. The reality is that heroes are people and people are flawed, and there's no way around that. Which is worth keeping in mind when we consider the one-eyed, one-handed, three-fingered Nazi war hero who, on this date in 1944, July 20th, placed a bomb and briefcase under a table around which were gathered high-ranking members of the German military, including the Fuhrer himself all part of an elaborate effort to undo the Third Reich in one fell swoop that would require one essential triggering event, killing Adolf Hitler. I'm John Brooks. This is Hard to Believe.
Klaus von Stauffenberg was born a count in a castle in Bavaria in 1907 to a Catholic German family whose status as members of the German nobility had begun in the 13th century. Typical of Bavarian aristocratic culture, the Stauffenbergs valued the ideals of the Romantics, nature, art, poetry, philosophy, intellect, and music. Klaus's brothers, the twins Berthold and Alexander, went on to become a lawyer and a professor respectively. Klaus, the youngest, had also been a twin, but his brother died shortly after his birth. It was Klaus who demonstrated a penchant for adventure, and thus Klaus who would carry on the family's tradition of military service, joining the Bomberg Horsemen in 1926. It was about this time that Alexander, studying at the University of Jena, came to meet one of the university's professors, Albrecht von Blumenthal, a Prussian classicist. Blumenthal was a member of the George Circle, a secret society of intellectuals dedicated to the poetry, philosophy, and political vision of Stefan George. He soon brought Alexander and his brothers into the circle. Much debate remains about what exactly drove Klaus to join the circle of resistance that carried out the July 20th plot. By some accounts, it was a sort of post-traumatic revelation. When serving as lieutenant colonel of the 10th Panzer Division in Tunisia, he was horribly wounded in an air raid that scarred his body and left him short one eye and one hand, with only three fingers remaining. Stauffenberg's frustration and disillusionment with the German war effort had already grown to near its breaking point, and some less sympathetic historians suggest he was merely interested in replacing the Reich's leadership with his own inner circle. Among them is Hans Bernd Gesevius, a contemporary of Stauffenberg who, like Stauffenberg, had secretly been working to undermine the Reich. But Gesevius had his own reasons for dismissing and discrediting Stauffenberg's legacy. He, unlike Stauffenberg, survived the Reich and lived to the age of 70, spending much of his life popularizing and publicizing his own story, a story that needed to overshadow Stauffenberg's story in order to carry much weight. This stands in contrast to another less critical, perhaps even uncritical, analysis of Stauffenberg as the consummate conscientious objector who, upon learning of the atrocities carried out against the Jews in the name of the German people, was overcome by his devout Catholic faith and would willingly cash in his own life if it meant ending Hitler's. It's a romantic and alluring picture, one reflected in the German Resistance Memorial Museum in Berlin at the Bendlerblock, where Stauffenberg breathed his last. It's the kind of story we want to believe but we know in our gut is too good to be true. Last year, 2019, saw the publication of Thomas Karloff's new biography, Stauffenberg, Portrait of an Assassin, a work that tries to thread this needle and swing the pendulum back to the center. Karloff affirms some of the typical points of contention. Stauffenberg was an enthusiastic champion of the ideology of National Socialism, though less clear as if he was ever enthusiastic for the movement's leader he would ultimately seek to kill. Growing up in the shadow of a humiliated, fractured post-World War I Germany, ideas of German exceptionalism and nationalism resonated with him as it did with so many Germans, as it was designed to do. As a devoted German nationalist, nearly all of Stauffenberg's decisions through the span of his life can be understood as being carried out in Germany's best interests. And when he saw Germany being dragged irretrievably to hell by a fanatic lunatic, he acted on those interests. It's fair to say he was not a revolutionary or a liberal. It's also fair to say he was not a genocidal fascist. No, Karloff argues, the only way to truly understand Stauffenberg is not through the lens of his Catholicism or his feelings towards National Socialism, 
It is through his devotion to Stephen George and the circle and to the core principles at the heart of George's work, the secret Germany. The nature and exact beliefs of the George circle are clandestine and difficult to extract fully, as is the nature of secret societies. But like the intersection of poetry, literature, and quasi-religiosity that had been the hallmark of the transcendentalist movement of 19th century America, the circle encountered George and his work with a religious zeal, casting him as a semi-divine prophet along the lines of a modern Socrates. The harshest of its critics write off the circle as a cult, and George is nothing more than a typical cult leader, employing typical cult leader strategies to manipulate his followers, and there's plenty of room to interpret him this way. Indeed, sexual shame, a sadly common psychological trait among cult leaders, played an outsized role in George's identity. He was a gay man who devoted his life to celibacy and encouraged his circle to do the same. The father of five children, Stauffenberg seems to have dismissed this tenet in favor of his Catholicism. He spoke of himself in openly messianic terms, and indeed the purpose of the circle was apocalyptic, literally. The word apocalypse, of course, comes from the Greek, to reveal or remove a veil, and the circle's goal was to strip away the grotesqueries of modernity, which, it should be noted, included the notion of racial superiority, and to unveil the secret Germany lying beneath. Two of George's poems play a critical role in this particular story. One of them, Der Krieg, The War, written in 1917, is a gloomy, sorrowful reflection on the cost to German prosperity and optimism resulting from the First World War. It is laden with elements of George's unique and agenda-driven worldview. An English translation begins. As jungle beasts, which slink away or snarl at one another in their greed to rend, seek company and huddle in a flock, when forests are ablaze or mountains quake, so in our country, split to factions, foes united at the cry of war. A breath not felt before, a breath of union floated from rank to rank, and a confused divining of what was now to come. The people, seized by tremors, great as changing worlds, one instant forgot the glut and the gods of coward years, and saw themselves majestic in their need. And its last few lines read as follows. You who on reeking corpses swing your scourges, may you preserve us from too light an ending, and from the worst, the blood betrayal. Races committing this will wholly be uprooted unless their best is used to halt the doom. The sort of quasi-mythical quality of George's imagery in poems like The War that recalls the Book of Revelation in addition to his prophetic optimism, jived well with the National Socialists, with whom he became very popular, even if the National Socialists did not sit well with George. His popularity among the party led Goebbels to offer to make him the president of the Arts Academy. He declined. The other relevant poem is Der Wiederkrist, the Antichrist, written in 1907. It's a poem that spoke to the young Klaus von Stauffenberg, and historical sources contend that he would recite it frequently, especially when discussing the Fuhrer. Here's a translation from the late American poet and historian, Peter Vierick. He comes from the mountain, he stands on the grove. Our eyes have seen it, the wine that he wove. From water, the corpses he wakens. Oh, could you but hear it at midnight, my laugh. My hour is striking, come step on my trap. Now into my net stream the fishes. The masses mass matter, both numbskull and sage. They root up the arbors, they trample the grain. Make way for the new resurrected. 
I'll do for you everything heaven can do. A hairbreadth is lacking, your gape too confused to sense that your senses are stricken. I make it all facile, the rare and the earned. Here's something like gold, I created it from dirt. And something like scent, sap, and spices. And what the great prophet himself never dared, the art without sowing to reap out of air. The power still lying fallow. The lord of the flies is expanding his reich. All treasures, all blessings are swelling his might. Down, down with the handful who doubt him. Cheer louder, you dupes of the ambush of hell. What's left of life essence, you squander its spells. And only on doomsday feel paupered. You'll hang out your tongues, but the trough has been drained. You'll panic like cattle whose farm is ablaze. And dreadful the blast of the trumpet. The perceived prescience of this poem seeming as it does to predict the rise of a figure like Hitler, helps secure George's reputation as a mystical seer, a prophet of doom and rebirth, whose prophecies were fulfilled in part by the Reich. But in imagining Stauffenberg routinely reciting this poem from memory, we also get perhaps our best glimpse into the mind of the man and what drove him. It's safe to assume Stauffenberg was not a political ideologue, but he could intuit charlatans and fraudsters, antichrists and lords of the flies. He saw it as his chief goal to thwart such people. The ultimate war for him was not for Germany, but for secret Germany. Hitler had to be stopped. After surviving the assault in Tunisia, Stauffenberg returned to Germany, where in the fall of 1943, while recovering from his wounds, he was contacted by Henning von Tresco. Tresco was himself a remarkable figure and far more ideological than Stauffenberg. While an early adopter of the Nazi cause, he witnessed their atrocities firsthand and realized that the smiling Aryan facade hit a dark, genocidal, fanatical core. He was before long explicit in his goals, not merely to remove Hitler from the face of the earth, but to eradicate the very ideology of National Socialism altogether. Tresco would ultimately prove to be perhaps the most important and effective recruiter and strategist in the resistance, and prior to the July 20th plot, he came very close to finishing the job himself. In 1941, Tresco had conceived of Operation Spark. In his estimation, it would not be enough to kill Hitler, nor to simply kill Hitler alongside his likely successors, like Heinrich Himmler. Rather, what would be required would be a chain of events sparked by the Fuhrer's death, a provisional government ready to take charge before word of the assassinations could make its way through the ranks of the Reich and then the public. Killing Hitler would be the spark to light the fuse, and then the rest of the plan would be immediately put into action. To this end, he was put into contact with Friedrich Ulbricht, the best man on the inside for the resistance. Ulbricht was chief of the General Army Office and the Armed Forces Reserve, meaning he had the ability to rally a significant number of troops on a moment's notice, which would have been key for successfully achieving a coup. The initial spark Tresco had in mind for the coup was to simply have Hitler shot. While serving on the Eastern Front, he planned on doing just that, when, on the 13th of March in 1943, Hitler came to Smolensk. While certainly more foolproof than other methods, that was part of the problem. The attempt would have to be carried out with enough anonymity so as to stir fear and confusion. And so Tresco threw together a time bomb hidden in a bottle of Quantro that he gave to one of the Fuhrer's escorts to deliver to Colonel Helmuth Steiff. If the bomb went off, Hitler's plane would have been blown out of the sky within 30 minutes, his death both assured and its cause a mystery to those on the ground, giving the coup plenty of time to come together. But the low temperature on the plane effectively froze the bomb's components and stopped it from detonating. 
The conspirators were able to retrieve the Quantro bottle before its true identity was revealed. But the failed attempt provided an important lesson. Yes, shooting the Fuhrer openly would provide certainty, but would thwart the coup before it could even start. But trying to kill him remotely with a bomb was also far too risky. If the bomb failed and the conspirators could not retrieve it, they were finished. And so Tresco and his co-conspirators came to realize that they had only one option. Hitler would have to be killed in a bombing, but the bomb had to be hand-delivered in a way that aroused as little suspicion as possible. And who would be less likely to attempt such a thing than a decorated war hero and a German patriot with one eye and barely one hand? Stauffenberg was the perfect candidate. Tresco had his confederates reach out to Stauffenberg to arrange a meeting between the two. As it happened, Stauffenberg would, in 1943, find himself working under Ulbricht, meaning the two could coordinate a new game plan for Operation Spark with relative ease. As such, Tresco decided to return to the Eastern Front, aware that it was in the best interest of the Resistance to keep as few of its members in one place as possible, thus leaving Stauffenberg in charge of planning and executing the next attempt at Operation Spark. Albrecht and Stauffenberg settled on a clever strategy suggested to them by Tresco. In order to prevent the unraveling of the Reich, in the event an attempt on his life ever succeeded, Hitler had put in place a contingency plan called Operation Valkyrie. In Norse myth, the Valkyries are the supernatural fates of war. They decide who lives and who dies, and they escort the valiant warriors to their reward in Valhalla, the giant pub in the sky, with presumably eternally free refills. They also, of course, figure prominently in Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle. Hitler was an enormous admirer of Wagner and his music, and much of the pseudo-religious underpinnings of Nazi ideology can be traced to Wagner's depiction of Norse myth. The name of the operation itself speaks to Hitler's vanity, arrogance, and deluded sense of self-deification. So there was something especially satisfying to the resistance that they would be altering it to achieve the opposite of its intended purpose. Under Operation Valkyrie, the Reserve Army would immediately be activated upon news of the Fuhrer's death, so that the Reich could transfer power safely and create an immediate bulwark against any potential insurgency. Ulbricht would be in charge of its implementation, and thus Stauffenberg and Ulbricht devised a plan whereby, upon killing Hitler, Stauffenberg would get a message directly to Ulbricht, who would muster the Reserve Army and report that Hitler had been assassinated by the SS. The army would take over the Reichstag, arrest remaining members of the inner circle, including Goebbels, and disarm the SS, after which they would transfer power to their own provisional government and arrange a favorable surrender to the Allied forces, ending the war, disbanding the Nazi Reich, and salvaging Germany all at the same time. But to do this, the terms of Operation Valkyrie had to be greatly expanded, and those terms would have had to have had the Fuhrer's signature, and that would have to be done carefully so as not to arouse suspicion. This was perhaps the plan's greatest vulnerability, but the amendments were carefully drafted in such a way that they would seem to be in Hitler's best interests, and shortly after sending them off for approval, they returned with Hitler's blessing. The last obstacle was Friedrich Fromm, the general who commanded the reserve army. Only he could give the final call to activate the reserves, and though he knew an assassination plot was underway, he hedged his bets and decided to keep his hands off so as to maintain plausible deniability. For the plan to work, his hand would have to be forced, or else the members of the coup would have to arrest him and let Ulbricht take command. The conspirators agreed that to ensure success, Hitler would have to be killed alongside both Himmler and Hermann Goering. Stauffenberg had been in a position to carry out the bombing on two separate occasions, on July 4th and 15th, but held back because he couldn't get all three in the same room at the same time. 
The aborted attempts left the conspirators too exposed, and they concluded that they must follow through on killing Hitler without any further delay. Stauffenberg was called to a conference at the Wolfslayer, the forest headquarters for the Eastern Front operations in Poland. Hitler would be in attendance, and the meeting was to be held in the complex's underground bunker. The sealed-in location would maximize the bomb's effectiveness, all but guaranteeing the deaths of everyone in the room. All Stauffenberg had to do was arrive, arm the bomb, excuse himself, and flee, using the chaos from the explosion as a diversion. When he arrived, he learned the meeting had been moved to an open-air room because of the hot July weather. But Stauffenberg had brought two bombs in his briefcase, which should have been more than enough to kill everyone in the room anyway. He asked to use the bathroom just prior to the beginning of the meeting, during which time he and his aide, Werner von Haften, quickly assembled one of the bombs, a dangerous and demanding enough process for a person with two eyes and two hands, but they were unable to arm the second bomb, as he was alerted by a guard to the start of the meeting, interrupting the assembly. He entered the meeting, placing the briefcase under the table, careful to position it as near to Hitler as possible. Within a few minutes, he received a decoy telephone call, claiming he was being ordered back to Berlin immediately. At some point in the meantime, someone, long believed to be Heinz Brandt, moved Stauffenberg's case closer to a leg of the table, thus inadvertently shielding Hitler from direct exposure. Brandt wasn't as lucky, as his leg was blown off not long before he ultimately died from his injuries. As the bomb exploded, Stauffenberg and Haefen sped away from the wolf's lair to board a plane to Berlin. Stauffenberg was sure that the blast had killed the Fuhrer, and he reported such to Ulbricht. But it hadn't, and in the meantime, a co-conspirator from the wolf's lair had called into the Bendler block to warn them that Hitler had survived. Facing two competing reports, Ulbricht hesitated to carry out Valkyrie. As expected, Fromm, also unclear as to who to believe, played whichever side he thought was winning, but was nonetheless not a direct obstacle until some time later, when Ulbricht and Stauffenberg had no choice but to detain him at gunpoint. The arrest and disarming of SS officers was well underway, but the failure to kill Hitler and to create a single narrative of the event would be the plotter's undoing. Within a few hours, Hitler had been well enough to call Goebbels in Germany to get the word out that he was alive and well. The conspiracy quickly unraveled over the next few hours. The July 20th plot did not achieve its intended outcome. But the tide of the war had already turned. Germany was losing. Hitler would be dead in eight months. And while the July 20th plot failed, it surely served as yet another psychological blow to Hitler. A reminder that the walls were closing in. That his enemies, abroad and domestic, were legion. In the aftermath of the attempt, the Gestapo rounded up some 7,000 people, accusing them, often without cause, of being involved with or aiding and abetting the plot. Among them was Ludwig Beck, perhaps the highest-ranking member of the resistance. Beck was given the honor of taking his own life with his own pistol. But the self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head failed, and Fromm ordered his men to finish the job. Also among the accused and executed were the theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his brother Klaus, and, as fate would have it, Count Hans-Jürgen von Blumenthal, the cousin of Albrecht von Blumenthal, the man who had introduced the Stauffenberg brothers to Stefan George.
and brought them into the circle. Hans Jürgen was hanged on the 13th of October, 1944. Friedrich Fromm's attempts to keep his hands clean didn't work. On March 12, 1945, he was executed by firing squad. Ever determined to control his own destiny, Tresco, still on the Eastern Front, upon learning of the failure, took his own life the next day. Before doing so, he left his parting words with fellow conspirator Fabian von Schlebendorf. It had been Schlebendorf who had smuggled the Quantro bomb onto Hitler's plane the previous year. He was arrested following the July 20th plot, but while serving time in a concentration camp, he was liberated by the 5th U.S. Army in May of 1945 before he could be tried by a Nazi court. He died in 1980 at the age of 73. Tresco's note to Schlebendorf reads, The whole world will vilify us now, but I am totally convinced that we did the right thing. Hitler is the arch enemy, not only of Germany, but of the world. When, in a few hours' time, I go before God to account for what I have done and left undone, I know I will be able to justify what I did in the struggle against Hitler. God promised Abraham that he would not destroy Sodom if only ten righteous men could be found in the city, and so I hope for our sake that God will not destroy Germany. No one among us can complain about dying, for whoever joined our ranks put on the shirt of Nessus. A man's moral worth is established only at the point where he is ready to give his life in defense of his convictions. As for Stauffenberg, Fromm had assembled an impromptu court-martial the very same night the plot had been carried out. Stauffenberg, his first lieutenant, Werner von Haften, and Ulbricht, in addition to one of his loyal lieutenants, were all sentenced to death. They were killed by firing squad sometime after midnight on the morning of July 21, 1944. There are multiple differing accounts as to what exactly Klaus von Stauffenberg's final words were, but they were most likely this. Es lebe das Geheim Deutschland. Long live the secret Germany. Join me again on Wednesday when I'll be speaking with historian Roger Morehouse about Stauffenberg, the July 20th plot, and other attempts to take down the Nazi Reich. Until then, make good trouble. <laughs>